Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, January 3rd, 2021, and this is show number 817. With another year successfully buttoned up, we're going to start out 2021 with what I think is going to be a great show, but you know what? I'm biased. I think every week is a great show. But before I dig in, I want to plug the last two episodes of Bart's two podcasts that he does on his own. I've talked to you about them before, but his last two were just really, really good. On Let's Talk Apple, his monthly review of Apple News, he had Ken Ray, also known as Mac OS Ken, on the show, and it was a, it was a delightful conversation between the two of them. Now, obviously, Bart is knowledgeable about his own subject, but Ken is equally knowledgeable on this subject, so it made for some interesting discussion, and I really, really enjoyed it. On Bart's photography show, Let's Talk Photography, he did a solo show where he discussed the 12 things that have advanced over the years to take phone cameras from absolute jokes to real cameras. He was inspired to do this episode because he discovered that in 2020, he did not take a single photo with his big boy camera, at least a a photo that he kept. Part of that was caused by 2020, obviously, but he believes it still would have been in, it would not have been in double digits of saved photos if he'd been able to travel about. You can find both of these episodes at let's-talk.ie or look for Let's Talk Apple and Let's Talk Photography in your podcatcher of choice. This week on Chit Chat Across the Pond, it was Bart back with Programming by Stealth uh, installment 109. We continue our mini-series within a series learning the version control system Git. We learned two methods to enhance our branching strategy. First, we will walk through some basic principles on how to number our released versions of our code. From there, we'll explore three types of changes that would cause a change in our release versions, fixes, new features, and breaking changes. That sounds as exciting as it is. Anyway, uh, each of these types of updates to the version of our code can be articulated with something called semantic versioning, also known as SEMVER. This numbering convention informs users of our code on the meaning of each release. Finally, we marry these concepts by creating uh, meaningful commit messages using another convention called conventional commits. Not only can a user of our code see at a glance what happens in a specific commit, documentation can also be auto-formatted that explains these commits. Now, there's not a lot of hands-on in this particular lesson, but as a structured kind of a person, I really appreciate these conventions and why they're important. So go look for Programming by Stealth in your podcatcher of choice and look for episode PBS 109. You know I'm a big fan of taking screenshots, and if I can find an excuse to annotate a screenshot, I am even happier. I have lots of tools to do this, and if I'm doing lots of annotations, I bring out the big guns like Folge or Captio. But if I want to do a quick screenshot, my go-to is still the built-in screenshot utility in macOS. I've also gotten quite fond of doing annotations using Preview. Even if you've been on the Mac a very long time, I'm betting I can tell you a few things you may not know about these two built-in tools. Let's start with the built-in screenshot utility in macOS. This utility is in your Applications folder, but it's one level deeper in the Utilities folder. It is named, quite imaginatively, Screenshot. You can double-click it from the Finder, drag it into your dock to to launch, use Spotlight to launch it, or you can invoke it with the keystroke Command-Shift-5. Now, we're going to be learning some more keystrokes in a bit, but let's focus on the utility itself first. No matter how you invoke Screenshot, when it opens, it's not really an app. You'll see a dotted marquee rectangle overlaying whatever's on screen, and you'll see some buttons below the rectangle. 
But if you look at your menu bar, it doesn't say screenshot. It says the name of the forefront application that's on your screen. Now, screenshot is actually super capable. The left three buttons are to capture screenshots. You can do a full screen, a window, or an area, which is the default with the marquee. The next two buttons are for video, allowing video or full screen or an area, again with a marquee. Next, you've got some options that are pretty important because they affect how screenshots work, even if you don't invoke them using the utility directly. The first option is where to save screenshots. By default, it'll choose the desktop, which is, I think, a terrible place to put screenshots. Leaving screenshots on your desktop is just inviting you to be messy and disorganized. The Save To menu also lets you choose an alternate location, but you can also choose to have screenshots automatically go right to an application such as Mail, Messages, or Preview. Personally, I like to have them open in Preview so I can make sure they look right and add annotations if required. If you're recording video, one of the options will be to open your masterpiece in QuickTime when you're done. I can save the file if I really need it for later, but after annotating, I often hit Command-A to select all, then Command-C to copy, and then Command-V into an application such as Mail or Telegram or Slack. Then I hit Command-W to close the screenshot, at which point it will nag me to save, but a simple Command-Delete will hit the Delete button for me. Of course, you can do all of this via the menus, but I prefer the speed of keystrokes. If you ever need to capture a drop-down menu or some other ephemeral effect, the Options menu and Screenshot will even let you set a countdown timer for 5 or 10 seconds. If you've set your options to save your screenshots to a file, by default, the screenshot application will leave, I should call it utility because it's not an application, by default, it will leave a floating thumbnail in the bottom right of your window. I've always found that to be supremely annoying because you have to wait for about 5 seconds for it to disappear. In the Options menu, you can toggle off that floating thumbnail. So if it's been bothering you, you can get rid of it. But don't be too hasty to be annoyed. As I was studying this uh, utility to write it up, I realized that perhaps it has some value. I described in detail how I like to annotate and preview and then copy and paste from preview, and maybe that's not the most efficient way to do all those operations. Let's explore how the floating thumbnail might be helpful. If you don't need to deal with the screenshot right away, you can ignore the floating thumbnail and capture more images. You don't actually have to wait for it to go away. You can do screenshot, screenshot, screenshot. You don't have to wait for it. But if you do want to annotate the screenshot, you can click on the floating thumbnail and it comes up in what I can only call preview light. It's not really preview because there's no app running, but it has many of the same markup tools across the top. I say many of the same because it's got one that's even better than preview, and this is going to blow your mind. It blew my mind. One of the buttons looks like a little pen tip inside of a circle with a wee tiny like 10 pixel across arrow to the right. If you're still on Catalina, it'll be a rectangle with a diagonal line in the bottom right. It doesn't work as consistently on Catalina either. It works better on Big Sur. Next to the icon is a downward chevron. That chevron reveals your iOS devices that are on the same network. Curiously, I saw my devices and I, I selected my, mini, my iPad mini, which I call mini me, and the screenshot jumped instantly to my iPad mini. I used my Logitech crayon to draw on the screen on the iPad mini and the annotation updated on my Mac. At the same time, like I'm drawing on the iPad, it's showing up on the Mac. How crazy is that? I'm sure that's part of, what is it, continuity or handoff or one of those things. But wait, it gets cooler. 
Once you tap this magical icon the first time, the next time you take a screenshot with your Mac and select the floating thumbnail, it automatically jumps to your iOS device for annotation. It just does it. It will even wake up your device if it's asleep and locked. When you tap done on the iOS device, the screenshot disappears and the iOS device is still in its locked state. It's just like it's a little drawing pad attachment attached to your, to your Mac. Now, I am no longer going to complain about the floating thumbnail because this absolutely rocks. It's way easier to annotate with a pencil or crayon on an iPad than it is with a trackpad or mouse on a Mac. Not sure I would use an iPhone for this, but iPads are perfect as touchscreen drawing attachments for your Mac. Now that I'm in love with the floating thumbnail, we should finish up the explanation. Let's say you take a screenshot, tap the floating thumbnail, and realize that's not exactly what you wanted. Hit the escape key and that floating thumbnail and the, that, that entire screenshot simply disappears and doesn't get saved to your, desk, to your desktop. You can use the close button or the delete button if you'd rather not hit escape. The important thing is that it doesn't save the file at all. So this is way better than my method of taking the screenshot straight into preview. After all of this excitement with the floating thumbnail, the last two options in screenshot seem kind of like a letdown. You can have screenshot remember your last selection, which can be handy if you're screenshotting the same area repeatedly. Most of the time, I think we take screenshots of all different parts of the screen, and moving and resizing that remembered area is kind of tedious to me. If you uncheck remember last selection, then you'll get to do a simple click-drag to take your screenshots. Finally, you can choose whether or not to show the mouse pointer in your screenshot. Sometimes that's exactly what you do want, and sometimes it's exactly what you don't want so it's nice to have the option. I mentioned at the beginning of this tale of adventure that you can use Command-Shift-5 to invoke the screenshot utility. You can also invoke the different kinds of screenshots with keystrokes. Unfortunately, since screenshot isn't a real application, it doesn't have preferences for you to find those keystrokes. To find the keystrokes, you have to open System Preferences, Keyboard, select the Shortcuts tab, and then select Screenshots in the left sidebar. Yeah, that's the first place I thought to look too. Anyway, I did find it eventually. There are basically two types of screenshots, as we learned earlier. Full screen and a selected portion. You're going to hold down Command-Shift and then add a number. So just remember Command-Shift as though that's one keystroke. So Command-Shift and you're going to add a number to that. Full screenshots use the number three and selected portions use the number four. So Command-Shift-3 for full screen, Command-Shift-4 for a partial screen. With these keystrokes, you'll be saving the shot to a file. Remember that if you have the delightful floating thumbnail, you can grab it and mess with it before it saves. But if, what if you just want to copy it to the clipboard? You don't want to actually create a file at all. You just add the control key to the mix. So Command-Shift-3 becomes Command-Shift-Control-3 to do a full screenshot to the clipboard. Likewise, Command-Shift-4 becomes Command-Shift-Control-4 to do a partial screenshot and take it right to the clipboard. Now, I know that sounds like a lot of keys, but if you do it a few thousand times, you'll get good at it too. Also, how often do you really want the entire screen? Not that often, right? This means you'll only need to remember Command-Shift-4 and adding the Control key when you want to send it to the clipboard. Remember, with using the full utility, we have the option to capture a window? Well, we can do that even with keystrokes. If you start by using your partial window keystroke, Command-Shift-4, when you do this, you'll see a crosshair that lets you click and drag across an area to show what area you want screenshotted. But if you want an entire specific window, instead of clicking and dragging on the window when you see this, the crosshairs, 
hold down the Option key and the entire window you're hovering over will highlight. Then simply click on the window and your screenshot will be created. Now, Alistair Jenks gets the credit for the next screenshot tip. He stumbled across it this uh, right around the time I was writing this up, and he posted about it in our Slack, which you should join over at podfeet.com Slack. When you take a screenshot of just part of the screen, use a Command-Shift-4 to go to a file or adding Control to go to the clipboard, your screenshots will have a drop shadow applied to them. Now, I'm a huge fan of the drop shadow, but the one applied by macOS is huge. It's comically large, and it wastes way too much space. There are two ways to keep from getting the giant drop shadow of doom, trademark Donald Burr. Once you've done the, screen, the keystroke dance and you've already hit the space bar to highlight the window, before you click the window, hold the option key and click. The resulting screenshot will not have a drop shadow. I don't know how that, I don't know how he found that. But just in case anyone is still following along, that's command shift control four, space bar, option click. Easy peasy, right? Believe it or not, I do this often enough that it's absolutely muscle memory. Now, if you don't want to try to remember the, mag the magical option click at the end, or you're sure you hate the giant drop shadow as much as I do and never want to see it, open up the terminal and there's a defaults write command that I've put in the show notes that basically says defaults write, the screen capture tool, disable shadow, boolean, true. Then after that, you do have to restart the system UI server with the command kill all system UI server. Again, the, 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 you can just copy and paste from the show notes. After that, you'll never need to see that giant drop shadow again. If you ever change your mind and you want it back, just rerun the defaults right command I put in the show notes with boolean false instead of true. Now, I rewrote this particular article about five times because I kept learning new things. And in fact, the entire subject of the article changed. I've still got the previous idea ready, but it's going to end up being a tiny tip compared to what you learned in this one. I'm thrilled to find out that the floating thumbnail is super useful and will be annotating my little heart out with my iPads from now on. Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. I'm Jeff Butts from the Mac Observer. I'm a guy that loves all things Apple, but I also love to tinker around with electronic gadgets. I'm talking about things like Arduino boards, Raspberry Pi, that sort of thing. Today, I'm going to talk to you about the newest Raspberry Pi starter kit from Canakit. Now, if you're not familiar with Raspberry Pi, other than it's a tasty treat, let me give you a brief intro. The Raspberry Pi Foundation was started in 2012 in the UK. The idea was to help bring super affordable computers to people all over the world, especially to help make teaching computer science inexpensive. It all boils down to an ARM-based system on a chip on a small circuit board, but it really packs a punch. Most Raspberry Pi boards nowadays include gigabit Ethernet, 802.11 AC wireless, Bluetooth 5, Bluetooth low energy, micro HDMI ports, as well as both USB 2 and USB 3 ports. The latest version, the Raspberry Pi 4B, packs up to 8 gigabytes of RAM, and you'll also find a general purpose input-output header for hooking up your electronics projects. Now that's outside of the scope of what I'll be talking about here. The operating system for a Raspberry Pi and the storage all fits onto a micro SD card. The whole shebang, with most of the cases that are out there for the Pi, is about the size of a deck of playing cards. 
Now, your typical pie board doesn't cost more than around $35 on its own. That's not including the case or any of the cables that you're going to need. That's where Canakit comes in. Yeah, the Raspberry Pi Foundation will sell you a starter kit with everything you need, but there are other manufacturers and distrib distribution companies that have jumped on the bandwagon, including Canakit. Now, we're looking at Canakit's latest starter kit, the Pi 4 Extreme. This is available with either 4 gigabytes or 8 gigabytes of RAM, depending on what you want. Most of the Raspberry Pi cases I've seen are pretty plain and boring plastic, but this one's different. It's a premium self-cooling aluminum case, and mine is silver with a soft-touch black lid. It looks a lot sexier than your typical Raspberry Pi case. With the Extreme Kit, you get everything you need to get up and running, except your keyboard, mouse, and display. It comes with a Samsung Evo Plus 128GB microSD card, preloaded with operating systems for your Pi. You also get a USB card reader, a USB-C power supply, and two micro HDMI cables. If you need more storage space, it's really easy to add an external USB hard drive or a thumb drive. The board has two USB 3 ports as well as two USB 2 ports. So use the USB 3 and you'll even have fast access to your external files. And yeah, you heard me right when I said it comes with two micro HDMI cables. This itty bitty computer can easily run a dual monitor setup. And Canakit's Extreme Starter Kit even gives you the cables for it. And those micro HDMI ports even support 4K displays. Now, the first thing that you're going to have to do with just about any Raspberry Pi starter kit is put it together. It's pretty simple, shouldn't take you more than half an hour. You place the Raspberry Pi board on the bottom of the case, apply the thermal pad on top of the processor, and then put the top of the case on. You'll secure it all with four screws that are included. Now, Canakit does include an instruction sheet for this. It's illustrated, but the one thing that was missing on mine was the thermal pad. That part I had to figure out on my own, but my source at Canakit tells me that they're in the process of develop developing a new instruction sheet that talks about the thermal pad. Without that thermal pad, you're going to burn up your Raspberry Pi in a hurry because it does not use a fan, it does not use heat sinks, none of that. The other thing I noticed is that on Canakit's webpage, it talks about and shows a, an inline power switch that you can just push a button and turn the power on or off. My kit didn't include that, but that may be different by now. I'm waiting to find out. The kit just came out in November, so it's still pretty new. Once you've got the Raspberry Pi board installed into your case and your case put together, you would just plug in the included micro SD card into the slot on the back of the case, hook up your keyboard, mouse, and monitors, plug in the power supply, and it boots up. Once it's up and running, you're going to have a fully functional desktop computer that performs very, very comparably, if not faster, than most of your entry-level PC laptops and desktops. The micro SD card includes several operating systems. There's a retro gaming bundle called RetroPie, lets you play classic arcade and console games. 
Um, what I installed was the Raspberry Pi OS, which is a variant of Debian Linux. Assuming you already have a keyboard, mouse, and display, you can be up and running with this baby for less than $150. Now, bear in mind, if you have a TV with an HDMI port, there's your display. You can plug this right into your television, plug in your keyboard and mouse. If you've got a Bluetooth keyboard and mouse, you can even use that. I've been running Raspberry Pi for years, and I have to say this latest one is totally amazing. Uh, the First of all, the Raspberry Pi 4 Model B circuit on a chip, or system on a chip, I should say, is phenomenal. It is super fast with up to 8 gigabytes of RAM. You're not going to run out of memory. Um, it fully supports 64-bit operating systems. So if you want to install a 64-bit version of Linux, you can. Um, right now, Raspberry Pi is only a 32-bit operating system, but I expect that to change real soon. Um, there's other things you can do with it, too. Uh, I've been running it for years, like I said, and it's great for programming. It's great for surfing the web, doing word processing and spreadsheets with LibreOffice. And if you decide to, you can use RetroPie to turn this into a gaming console for classic games, including old Super Nintendo, Atari 2600, classic arcade games, all of that. You can also install the Kodi Entertainment Center software, which allows you to stream your movies, television shows, and music to your TV. You can even run Windows 10 on this, if that's your thing. There's the Windows 10 Internet of Things edition, and I've even read reports of people installing the full-blown version of Windows 10 on a Raspberry Pi 4. Since the operating system runs off a microSD card, if you want to change from one to the other, just get another microSD card. You can use your Mac or your PC to install the operating system onto that microSD card, plug it into your Raspberry Pi, and boot it up. This starter kit, the Extreme Starter Kit from Canikit, is a great way to get started. You'll get everything you need, but you do need to bring some common sense and curiosity to the game. Raspberry Pi is for people who like to tinker, um, hobbyists, people who like to play around. There's so much you can do, especially since it has the GPIO header on it. You can hook up sensors, electronics, LED lights. I've even seen a kit where you can make a remote control car or truck out of the out of the Raspberry Pi board. But this extreme kit, you need to bring in that curiosity and that tinkering. Because if I hadn't been the type to to play around and wonder, hey, what's this for? I probably would have thrown that thermal pad out with the trash. And then my pie wouldn't have lasted very long before overheating. The other thing to bear in mind, and this is just a minor gotcha, the top of the case takes a little bit of wiggling to get seated right, but it's, it's not too challenging. You can figure it out. To make a long story short, if you're looking to get started with Raspberry Pi, or even if you've been involved in a while and want a new one to add to your collection, this Raspberry Pi Extreme Starter Kit is really one of the best ones I've seen.
You get everything you need, even the HDMI cables to plug into two monitors. It comes with the micro SD card um, and not just a tiny one, 128 gig micro SD card, which is good for most things you might do on the Pi. And it just, it looks really slick. So be sure to check it out and uh, stay tuned. And I might bring more of my hobbies and electronics curiosity over to you here at NoZillaCast. I will catch you all later and have a great day. Wow, Jeff, I cannot believe that that's your first uh, audio review for us. That was fantastic. I, Man, I really want to buy these things. I, I think uh, I, I'm going to quote Casey Liss from the Accidental Tech Podcast. He was on uh, Clockwise, and he said, now that I'm into Raspberry Pis, it's like I have, a, I have a hammer and I need to go find nails to nail with it because he has so much fun with them. So that is really tempting. And it's, it's cool to hear about such a slick one with, uh, with such a, you know, such a good looking interface. But uh, anyway, I do have one. I have played with it. Uh, not the exact model of Raspberry Pi that you're talking about. And it really was fun. So anyway, um, that was great. And I hope you will come back and do more of these for us, Jeff. I would like to make a statement. My husband, Steve, is a lunatic. Let me set the stage to explain what I just said. One of our marital battles is who will get to give the last Christmas present. I was sure I would get to go last because I had the best present. I bought him a new quadcopter. He's been using a five-year-old giant DJI quadcopter that he'd Frankensteined a camera and a gimbal onto and he'd crashed a few times. It was a great quadcopter, but he was hardly ever bringing it anywhere because it was gigantic. For Christmas, I got him the DJI Mavic Air 2. The Mavic Air 2 folds up to a tiny size. It's less than 7 by 4 by 3 inches. I mean, really, really small. It comes with a terrific display on the controller, and the gimbal on the quadcopter has incredible stabilization, so the built-in camera will take fantastic 4K video. Clearly, I should fight to give last, right? Because I was definitely going to win Christmas. I did not win the battle to give last. Steve did. And I did not win Christmas. Not even close. I gave him the quadcopter, and while he was thrilled, he was much more excited to give me my present. Steve told me to close my eyes and hold out my hands, so of course I held them absurdly close together, thinking maybe it was a big present because he would have just, you know, handed it to me if it wasn't. When I opened my eyes, there was a huge white box in front of me. A white box with an Apple logo on it. This box contained an Apple Pro Display XDR. Now, in case the name is unfamiliar to you, this is the 32-inch 6K display that Apple introduced with the Mac Pro. Seriously, I cannot believe he did this. He also bought me the stand so I wouldn't have to lay the display on, down on my desk, so that was nice. Now, I'm going to do my best to give you an intelligent assessment of my observations about the Pro Display XDR, but I'm going to admit right here that I don't feel worthy to judge this display. I'd also like to say right here that I definitely did not need it. I already had a 27-inch LG 5K ultra-fine display that had a lovely screen, so I had no excuse to ask for the XDR. But I'm quite pleased that Steve felt that I deserved it. For the first few days, I didn't really get to play with it much because our kids were over and staying in my studio. We also couldn't stand the idea of not opening it, so we set the display up on the kitchen table. This was terrifying in itself because in the house at that time, we had three huge dogs, a four-year-old, and two crawling infants, both of whom have an affinity for power cords. 
but we really wanted to play with it. The attachment mechanism for the display to the stand is a real feat of engineering. With the display tilted back, you match up the visa mount circular piece on the stand to a matching circular hole in the back of the display. You tilt the display back until the top edges of the circle meet, and then you gently rotate it more towards vertical until it clicks into place. When you hear that click, a lock on the back of the display has engaged. To remove the display from the stand, you slide the lock and then reverse the process by tilting the display back and lifting it off. Once the display is locked in place, you can raise and lower the display. At its lowest, it doesn't go as low as it needs to. The top of the display above the desk goes from a high of 25.7 inches to a low of 21 inches. Now, ergonomics experts will tell you to have the top of the screen at eye level, but this display is 4.5 inches above my eye level, and I'm sitting in a chair Steve got me at a big and tall store. Now, I have a suspicion that Apple makes their decisions on display height based on the average American male. According to NASA's anthropo I'm going to mispronounce this, anthropometric dim dimensional data, the 50th percentile American male's eye height from seat is 3.1 inches higher than the 50th percentile American female. I gave you a link, of course, to uh, NASA STD-3000, Volume 1, Section 3.3.1.3-1, if you'd like to go read up more on that. In any case, 3.1 inches higher for the typical American male than the typical American female. Now, at 5.5, uh, sorry, 5 feet 5 inches tall, I'm actually taller than the average American female. And what if you're a Japanese female? Their average height is 4 foot 9. They would have to sit on a bar stool to see the top of this monitor without neck strain. You know, I may just pen a letter to Tim Cook about this one. Anyway, I've pushed the display way back on my desk, and that helps with the angle for my neck, but I really could use those extra three inches of height that the boys have. I'm working out what kind of content I can fling up to the top to get it out of the way. Another issue with it being so tall is that my Logitech C920 webcam is now so high that I have to tilt it down to get me properly in the view, which means you can no longer see my mantle of toys during the live show. Now, Kevin will be very sad when he realizes the meat grinder won't be in view anymore, as will Jill about the cheese head she gave me. The good news about the height of the display is that it's at its highest level, I can easily use it when I'm standing because it rotates back a little bit too. I wish I was a fan of standing desks because it would be great for that. The XGR display has one really crazy thing it can do. If you unlock the lock I talked about earlier, you can actually rotate the display to portrait mode. So for the comedy, I connected my iPhone to my Mac, I opened QuickTime, and I chose new video recording and chose the phone as the camera. That's a trick that lets you put a phone screen onto your Mac display. The effect is that I have a giant 32-inch iPhone screen, and I, of course, put a photo of it in the show notes for the comedy. Okay, I guess I should quit goofing around and get serious about how awesome the Pro Display XDR is. It is pretty freaking awesome. Now, I won't be instructing you about the importance of P3 and color gamut and such things because I'm not an expert in screen technology. See my opening I'm not worthy statement if you, if you doubt me. What I am, though, is a data nerd, so I decided to compare the specs of the Pro Display XDR to the 27-inch LG 5K ultrafine display I'd been using before. It took a little digging to find the comparative specs, and it took some math to actually do some of the calculations. The XDR looks huge, but how huge is it? How much bigger is it than the LG 5K? The XDR is advertised as a 32-inch diagonal display, while the LG is 27. 
But what do those five inches really mean? I got out my trusty pullout rule and measured the width and height of the usable screen area. Knowing that both displays have a 16 by 9 aspect ratio, I was able to use the Pythagorean theorem to calculate the width and height of each display. Given those orthogonal dimensions, I could calculate the total screen area. After I spent some quality time with Pythagoras, I'd realized that I didn't need his dusty old theorem at all. There's a much easier way to calculate the width and height. According to their spec sheets, both of these displays have a pixel density of 218 pixels per inch. They also show their pixel width and pixel height in the specs. Simply dividing the pixel dimension by pixels per inch should give me a more accurate measurement of the screen width and height than my pullout rule. Throughout all of this, I discovered something interesting. The Pro Display XDR is not 32 inches diagonally as advertised. With my pullout rule, I measured it 31.5 inches diagonally. That 0.5 inch difference was giving me the wrong results when I used my Pythagoras versus my Pythagorean theorem process versus pixel density. When I adjusted the diagonal, they got a lot closer, at least within the accuracy of my pullout rule. For thoroughness, I measured the LG and it is exactly 27 inches. I thought maybe Apple always exaggerates the dimensions, so I asked Steve to measure his 27 inch iMac and it's exactly 27 inches as well. You would think that for the price of the Pro Display XDR, they would give you the full 32 inches, wouldn't you? Well, as you may recall, our purpose here was to calculate the effective screen area of the two monitors to see, you know, how big is it? If my siphon is correct, as Jethro used to say in the Beverly Hillbillies, the 31.5 inch XDR display has 38% more screen real estate than the 27 inch LG. Isn't that crazy that four and a half inches turns into 38% more area? That is the magic of geometry, folks. Well, this geometry exercise served an additional purpose as it answered a question for me. When we put the Pro Display XDR in its new home on my desk, I didn't feel blown away by the clarity of the text on the new display. We now know why. It's because the 27-inch LG 5K has the same pixel density. The Pro Display XDR sports 1,000 nits of screen brightness and could go to 1,600 nits peak. John Syracuse on the Accidental Tech Podcast recently explained how that, that 1600 nits peak comes into play. He said that in watching HDR video, the spec says you can measure the peak brightness as that which the display can provide across 10% of the screen. I haven't a clue how to verify that by my experience, but at least that's how I, that I now understand how it's measured. At 1000 nits, that's double the brightness of the LG 5K, which comes in at 500 nits. I love a bright screen because it causes my pupils to contract, which makes my depth of field deeper, which means I can see more clearly. Now, luckily, I'm not afflicted with light sensitivity, so brightness is pretty much always better for me. At supposedly double the brightness over the LG, I assumed I wouldn't be able to handle this display at its full brightness, but I do like it cranked all the way up. When I was fiddling with the brightness and system preferences, I noticed that there's a preset dropdown for this display. The default says Pro Display XDR P3-1600 nits. That's the default. Right below that is an option for Apple Display P3-500 nits. And with that preset at 100% brightness, it looks about the same to me. Now, it's a little hard to judge the brightness because the screen goes black in between these changes, even on the M1 Mac Mini. On M1s, usually you can switch display... Uh, um, well, actually, you can switch display resolution and it happens instantly, but apparently these presets do more, so it actually goes black and comes back. 
So it's a little hard to say that the 500 nits and the 1,000 nits looks the same brightness, but it really seemed about the same. I had Steve look at it at the two different settings, and he couldn't see a change in brightness either. This makes me think maybe I misunderstand the presets and what full brightness really means. I wrote a message to John Syracuse about this because he often says, no one wants their 500-nit monitor at a 100% brightness because it'll burn your eyeballs out. He says that all the time. I personally suspect that our light sensitivity is different, but he may know something about these settings, so I'm reserving judgment on that. There are nine more presets available in the, dis in the display's preferences, such as one for design and print, and also one for photography, internet and web, and another one for P3 HDR video. I tried looking at some Dolby Vision HDR10 video on uh, Netflix via Safari with the display set to the, uh, the normal P3 1600 nits and that P3 HDR video, and it looked good, but I don't know exactly what to look for. I heard John Syracuse talking again that, that those presets are for when you're doing work in that. So P3 HDR video, that's when you're editing P3 HDR video. That's why you would choose that preset. So maybe I shouldn't be choosing that to watch it. Not really sure, because if I change to that setting, the screen was very dim as comparison to the 500 uh, nit or 1000 nit settings. Finally, you can customize the presets by measuring the screen with one of those spider thingies. You know, you stick to your monitor and then you can store your own values as a preset. So if you're really into that stuff, you would love it. When we set up the Pro Display XDR in the kitchen, I spent a lot of time gazing with wonder at the holes on the back. They aren't just holes, they're a specifically designed structure that's part of the thermal control system for the display. Even if you're not a thermal design engineer, the aesthetics of the holes is gorgeous. I just like to look at them and wonder. I wish I could see the holes while seated at my desk, but sadly what I see is a giant gorgeous screen with an, a tiny little 3 8 inch bezel around the edges. You really do get immersed in the screen, which I think is a good thing, but darn, those holes are pretty. I do have to say, I, I posted about this in our Slack, and uh, someone said, why don't, oh, I know who it was, it was Tim McCoy said, you should, uh, and it wasn't in Slack, it was in our Facebook group. He said, take a picture of the holes and make it your desktop background, and then you can look at the holes. So I did exactly that. Anyway, so I have a nice looking desktop, and I can look at the holes whenever I want to now. Well, I want to back up a little bit and talk about the packaging for the Pro Display XDR and the stand. You would be correct in assuming that the box for the display was positively gigantic, and you would be right there with me trying to figure out how on earth Steve snuck this past me into the house. I think he could sneak a whole person in easier than he could these boxes. When we laid the box down flat for the display and opened it, there was a giant white peely on the face of the screen. The screen was in embedded deep into the protective cardboard, for a, and for a split second, I wondered how I was going to get my fingers in between the display and the cardboard to get it out, because there wasn't room. It's not like you could flip it over and bang on the back of it to get it to slide out, right? Well, after that split second, I noticed that the cardboard areas on each side had arrows pointing outwards. The, these areas, it turns out, they're hinged boxes, so you rotate them outwards, and now you have plenty of room to gently pull out the display. This is the kind of genius Apple uses in its packaging. If you're ever in trouble opening anything from Apple, sit back and look carefully. There's probably an easier way. But it was actually the packaging of the stand that was in some ways even more interesting to me. The stand comes in a tall square box, and when you open it, there's a lovely woven cloth handle over this interior square that you're going to pull out. It was that interior square piece that surprised me. 
It was basically a box structure with really thick cardboard to make impact-resistant pockets to protect the stand. That seems reasonable, but it was the thickness and weight of this that was extraordinary. I weighed this one piece of the box. This is just the top piece that you pull up and out of the box. It weighed three and a half pounds by itself. That doesn't count the equivalent bottom piece or the exterior of the box. The entire package, just for the stand, weighed 9.1 pounds. The stand itself weighs 9.5 pounds, so that's some pretty serious packaging, you know, weight ratio there. It's a good thing they did make it this sturdy because the delivery people sadly dented the corner of the box. But you know what? It had zero impact on the stand. Now, surprisingly, the display box wasn't nearly as proportionally beefy, coming in at 12.8 pounds for the display that weighs 16.5 pounds. Luckily, that one came through completely unscathed. While I was delighted that my products were so well protected in their beefy and heavy boxes, I wondered about the amount of waste they created. For another reason I'll get to into in a minute, I researched the Pro Display oh, get that right again. I researched the Pro Display XDR Environmental Impact Report. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. In that report, there's a specific section on the packaging, and it explains that 93% of the packaging is fiber-based. 66% of the fiber content in the package is recycled. And 100% of the virgin wood fiber, which I assume means the new stuff, not the recycled fiber, comes from responsibly managed forests. You know, that made me feel a lot better about the packaging, which we will now keep in our attic for the next 20 plus years. The description of the virgin wood fiber coming from responsibly managed forests had a footnote 8 on it. And I followed that link to Apple's sustainable fiber specification. In that spec, I learned that Apple considers bamboo a fiber. I did not realize that was a contentious argument, but apparently it is because they had to say it. And they list the councils and certifications they require for suppliers to follow in order to provide materials for the box that brought my precious to me. If you're into understanding these things, it's pretty interesting documentation. Of course, there's a link to that in the show notes. The main reason I went hunting for the environmental impact report on the Pro Display XDR was that I wanted to know just how much more energy this monitor would be consuming versus the LG 5K display I'd been using. I was shocked by what I discovered. The LG 27-inch 5K display draws 140 watts, while the Pro Display XDR only draws 105 watts, and that's when you're in the 1000 nits XDR brightness setting. That means the XDR draws only 75% of the power for a display that's twice as bright with 38% more pixels. Now, if I want to be a really good citizen of Earth, I can turn it down to the SDR 500 nit brightness setting, and it only draws 37 watts, or 26% of what the LG draws. I know Apple likes to brag about their work to reduce the environmental impact of their products. You know what? This spec says they deserve to brag a little bit. When the Pro Display XDR was first introduced, I assumed it could only be driven by the Mac Pro. It was in listening to the Accidental Tech Podcast that I first learned that a lot of Macs can drive this display, including the 2019 16-inch MacBook Pro I use as my daily driver. I have to say, works great with it. The Pro Display XDR also works with the 2018 15-inch MacBook Pro, the 4-port Thunderbolt 3 13-inch Intel MacBook Pro, and the 2020 MacBook Air and the 2019 27-inch iMac, and of course, all of the M1 Mac models. I just realized on the 13-inch, I didn't say that's the 2019 13-inch MacBook uh, Pro with the four ports. There was another side benefit to me getting the Pro Display XDR. 
Steve was able to retire his 1080p 27-inch Apple Thunderbolt display that he'd been using since 2012, and he was able to replace it with my 5G, uh, my LG 5K display. Now, while I'm in the lap of luxury with a 6K display now, Steve actually has 10K worth of displays since he hooked up the LG to his 27-inch 5K iMac. So I don't want to hear any whining about poor Steve. We put the LG in place and he's delighted with it. Even though the bezels don't match between the two displays, he's willing to suffer through it. Steve and I ran a test of the live show setup to make sure the 6K display driven by my laptop and his iMac driving two 5K displays wouldn't be brought to their knees by all of the video processing that goes on for the show. The biggest part of the video load goes to Steve's iMac, so we were a little bit worried. He did see his processors crank up to 90%, but that left just enough headroom for smooth video and audio in our testing. I expected that it would fall over in a heap when we did the real live show, but I'm recording that right now, and for right now, it's still working. Fingers crossed. Well, I still can't believe Steve bought me this display, but I'm really glad he did. I suspect that Steve really just wanted the LG 5K display, so if you think about it, I actually did give him the last gift. You may have noticed that this show is not supported by advertising. You don't have to wade through two minutes of talking about what ads will be in the show before you even get to the real content, and then the plot doesn't get interrupted by an ad in the middle either. I do take a quick minute to suggest that to keep the show ad-free, it would be swell if you showed your support financially. This week, both Laura and Ralph donated through PayPal at podfeet.com PayPal to show their appreciation for what they learn here. They both said very nice things in their email, especially about the contributions Steve makes to the shows. And I have to say, that means even more than the financial support. But I'm keeping the money, so don't worry about that. If you want to be swell like Lauren and Ralph, consider making a donation to support the show. Well, it's that time of the weekend, and it is time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats, and it is the quiet time, isn't it, Bart? It really, really is. Um, I was a little bit worried when I finished writing the show notes, and I was like, uh, there's very, the scroll bar is awfully large, and there's a <laughs> well, legend so at the much, bottom. So the much scroll. last time we had to break it into two entirely separate episodes. <laughs> That's a good point. So on average, it's been fine. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> But uh, you you found some things for us to uh, to stretch it out a little, so maybe chew on a little bit. Yeah. So so do we want to do the the kext one before we get into the the the, the main uh, bulk no, of the notes? Oh, okay. All right. All right. Um. So I had a question for Bart. Um. We both use Audio Hijack from Rogue Amoeba, and uh, we are both of the mind that uh, kernel extensions are evil things you should try to avoid it. Maybe unavoidable, but I was going to say evil is quite the right word. Apple is trying to eliminate them, mm. and uh, by and and increasing our security level by doing it. And in uh, Big Sur, you have to do quite a quite a little dance to install a kernel extension. Now you have to boot into recovery mode, and which is kind of terrifying in of itself. And then you have to lower the security level. But the security level you're lowering yourself to is where you were on Catalina. So it's yes. not like you're going opening the door to every awful thing in the whole world, right? Right, because the security level, the lower security level, is actually still very high. Because okay. all kernel extensions have to be digitally signed. So you're lowering 
to requiring digital signatures and all kernel extensions. So that's right. Okay. As lowering okay, goes, that's pretty high up. Right. So we were we were both kind of sad to see though that the Rogamiba audio capture engine, and I'll explain what Rogamiba's apps do just briefly. Most people probably know from listening to me blather about it for the years we've been talking about it, but there are applications that do a unique thing. Nobody else does anything like this that I've ever seen, is they allow you to capture the audio from the computer and route it in interesting ways. So mm-hmm. behind all of their applications is a thing called the audio capture engine, and that that is necessary for audio hijack. Uh, it's necessary for loopback. It's necessary for sound source. They all depend on the audio capture engine. And Apple has chosen to treat it like a kernel extension, even though technically, according to Rogamiba, it is not a kernel extension, but it is being treated as one. So you have to go through that dance. And I wrote to Paul Kafasis, of uh, who's the CEO of Rogue Amoeba, and and asked him a little bit about it. Could he hum a few more bars? And yeah. he said, yeah, I don't know why they're doing it this way, why they're treating it like one, but it isn't one. But he said that the nice thing is after you lower your security settings, you can go back in and and raise them back up. And yeah. I, I didn't realize that you could do that. I, I mean, I'm not sure how wise it is to do that, because that means that if you raise the shields up again then the next time there's a software update to Ace, you're going to have to do the whole dance again to lower your shields, do the update and raise your shields again. But wouldn't it be better to keep the shields up at, as much as possible? Uh, given that the sh- given that the level you're quote-unquote lowering to is a really high level, I'm not... I won't tell other people what to do. Well, mm-hmm. I'm not doing that. Really? How yeah. come? Just because it sounds like a hassle? Yeah. And then I'm going to, that's going to create a perverse incentive for me where I'm not going to update Ace because it's a pain in the backside. So now I have code running at a really, really high privilege level in my operating system with known bugs because it's too much of a pain in the backside to update it. And that's so worse. I think, I think where you and I are different is I rebooted the drop of a hat and you seem to be like a cat being dragged into a cat carrier to go to the vet for, for a, some kind of creepy exam to talk you into rebooting. Yeah, up 17 days at the moment. Yeah, uh, no, I just like things get weird, ah, reboot. And and you're like, no, I can't do that. And I've, Bart's, Bart, I've gotten into this discussion many times where something's super weird on his Mac and I have to beg him to reboot. So that might be why. Yeah, when I get something since I got to reboot, on, sure. Fu- Fusion drives on iMacs are a very different kettle of fish to shiny, shiny solid states. Ah, so there's time too. Yeah, yeah. Because to be honest, my my work machine is, is entirely solid state, and I reboot that one way, way more often. Okay. Without thinking about it, but the the iMac, it, it, the Fusion Drive has the advantage of being affordable, but the Fusion drives are not fast. Like yeah, yeah. So, okay, so that that does explain why you might do that. But I don't. If I don't mind rebooting, I mean, I'm sure it'll cause a delay of a day or two, maybe. But I it won't. I won't leave it running for weeks just because I don't want to reboot. So, okay, so th- that explains that part of it. This the second piece I wanted to ask you about kernel extensions, though. Steve has a uh, got a new DJI Phantom Mavic Air two for Christmas from yours truly. And it needed a firmware update. And in order to do the firmware update, he did the download of the software. And first of all, it was the the first piece of it was unsigned. So that was, yeah, annoying. But then even worse, but we're like, okay, we know where it came from. You didn't click a link in an email. You went to DJI Phantom. It's a known company and everything. I think it's a Chinese company. But anyway, so 
we uh, he, I convinced him to install the software, but then it needed a kernel extension, a driver, in order to talk to over USB to the quadcopter. Okay, but it came up and it said this. It was a little janky little window. Didn't look like anything I'd ever seen, and it said. This is a signed kernel extension. It is signed by, and it gave the guy's name. It said, it is signed. Right. Because if it wasn't, I don't think it could be run, even if you lowered every setting. Yeah. Yeah. So so he rebooted, and he's... Or I, I'm not sure he actually finished that part of the process, because the good news is he found out later on, he, he just kept... It just was really bugging him, and he kept looking, and he found out that the, uh, dis, the, the controller for the quadcopter has Wi-Fi, and he was able to download the firmware into that and, and update the quadcopter directly over, I don't know, Wi-Fi or Bluetooth between the two. Probably Bluetooth. That's so it took, much like, better approach. Forever. Yeah. But he didn't have to do it. But let's say he had finished installing the kernel extension. Mm -hmm. He definitely doesn't want that thing hanging around. How do you get rid of a kernel extension? I mean, you don't boot back into recovery and make it go away, do you? Um, Whether or not you have to be in recovery is actually an interesting question. You probably do, actually. So the kernel extensions are just text files. Well, no, sorry, not text files. They're... There are, there are files sitting on your hard drive in a special system folder whose name has just eluded me because I scrolled away from the bloody thing. Um, where are you? Where are you? Because kext is short for kernel extension. Mm-hmm. So it's in system library extensions. Which system? User system? No, no, Tilded? system. So no, no, oh, system, system. As in that, yeah. So system library is where the stuff that you really, really, like that, that system library is where the really, really, really core operating system level stuff goes. So system library extensions, and then there'll be a whole bunch of files in there ending in .kext for kernel extension. So you should see a .kext for DJI or something like that. And Correct. can you just delete them? Um, if all else fails, yes. But nothing will happen until you reboot because that will take them off your hard drive, but it won't take it off. It won't stop it being loaded in the kernel because it was loaded at boot time. Okay. There is a terminal command, um, which is the quote unquote correct way to remove a kex, which is uh, kex to unload. It's a very well named terminal command. Kex unload and then the name of the kex? The full path to the kex. Okay. And that will remove it in the quote-unquote correct way. But if that fails, good old ORM-RF path to kext file will force it out. Are you reading from a a link maybe I could just put in the show notes? Yes, I I did send you the link in one of our many modes of communication, but we (laughs) We may have too many of those at once. Okay. Uh, It's in Telegram, so I could pop it in. It's in Telegram, so you can pop it into the show notes, yeah. Uh, What I don't know is, so the article is from 2017 which means it's from before we got the new read-only file system, which means for in order to be able to do this, you probably do have to boot into recovery mode so that you can actually edit system library extensions. Hmm. Because with the, with um, Big Sur's new, new very, very clever uh, read-only file system, I'm pretty sure you can't delete texts unless you've booted into recovery mode. Okay, whole... so so this KXT unload might not be the way to do it. Um, you may need to boot into recovery mode and then run, and then do this because you can run the terminal in recovery mode. Yes. Okay. Yes, hmm. absolutely. Yes. 
Okay, that's a that's a pretty nerdy path for people to get rid of kernel extensions. Well, that's why it's also a nerdy path to get them in the first place. Eh, not that nerdy. I mean, it's it's a it's a long path, but it's not that hard. You, you you're not in the terminal. Let me put it that way. You're not in the terminal, but nonetheless, it's not the kind of thing you're going to do on a whim. Like it, the the barrier to entry is fairly high, which is what Apple want because really. The problem with kexts is how much you're trusting them. Uh, because a kernel extension means you're actually adding code not written by Apple into the very, very, very heart of the operating system, which means it's executing with above root privileges. So it's executing right. at the absolute most privileged level. And that has two potential problems. The first is having such high privilege, that code has access to literally everything. Right. So if it's untrustworthy, well, that's a problem. So you're doing, you're trusting. But because it's running at such a core part of the operating system, if it's just a buggy, the only thing that can, ha like the only way the operating system can respond to a bug in the kernel is to crash. Like your, your blue screen of death is what happens when the kernel fails. Okay. So if another process crashes, the kernel can catch it and for, you know, the app can quit or whatever, or your springboard can relaunch or whatever. But the kernel is what's catching the crashes in all the other processes. So when the kernel goes, there's literally nothing left. So a blue screen of death on Windows or the equivalent on the Mac, that's a kernel crash. And so when you load a kernel extension, you're adding someone else's code into the kernel. So if there's a bug in that code that causes a crash, then down comes the entire computer. Right, and you have no way of knowing what caused it, probably, either. Uh, it'll be in a log file somewhere, but the point being, <laughs> the reason you don't want many of them is because it's uh, you're trusting them and bugs become really catastrophic. So you're, you're, you're relying on them being trustworthy and being very well coded. And so that's why you should minimize them. Right, right. Well, I'm certainly worried about installing any of them. I'm in the middle of a quite a little dance on that topic with my uh, uh, my Thunderbolt interface requires one. Uh, the interface for my microphone. That is disappointing, but yeah. Yeah, it's a mess. It's a mess, I tell you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, let's, basically, let's... what Apple are trying to do is drive people towards standards because there are standards for audio and standards for video and standards for file transfer. And so the more hardware uses either one of the USB standards or one of the Thunderbolt standards or one of the, I mean, there's so many standards for video stuff. So that basically the more devices use standards, the less kexts are needed on planet Earth and the more robust yeah. all of our operating systems are. So Apple is trying to pressure the industry to do the right thing, but that has teething problems. Yeah, I think I'm I'm definitely I'm teething with 14 molars coming in right now <laughs> because it's yeah. it's uh it's basically stopping me from using the new M1 Mac mini because I can't use my interface on the M1. Uh I can't get the th thing to install properly and they're saying they're not certified to run with the the uh new M1s and it's like I thought I was just getting a different shaped connector audio interface that would be cleaner with less lag. And I, man, I bought into a bag of hurt switching from USB to Thunderbolt 3. That's interesting. Yeah. So obviously, if, they're, if they need a kernel extension, they're doing some really, really low level stuff, which means they actually probably do have to rewrite their driver for the M1. Because yeah. 
Oh, okay. Right, kernel's very low-level code, so there's every chance there's some assembly language in there. And if that's x86 assembly language baked oh. in there, it ain't going to do very well running on, a, on an ARM chip, is it? You know, it's funny you would bring up uh, uh, x86 assembly language because I, I didn't even think about the fact that all the assembly language stuff is is different now until yeah. Steve Gibson was on a, uh, a year-in-review twit with Leo and uh, and they were talking about the new M1s and you know ARM architecture and all this kind of stuff and and uh, Steve Gibson is if there's nobody more old school than Steve Gibson and he said he said yeah every single thing I've ever written basically is in uh, x86 assembly language and he says the only thing he can hope is that the uh, technology won't be adopted quickly enough that he'll ever need to change before he doesn't need to make a profit anymore. <laughs> He needs a trans a trans compiler. Take his assembly language and transpose it into. Oh, he'd uh, probably find that so dirty, though. <laughs> it would, though, because it wouldn't be perfectly efficient. You're right. Wouldn't be it would pure. waste a k of memory somewhere. <laughs> this is the man with Palm Pilots in his in his refrigerator to keep them uh, so keep that their their the chemistry in their battery slows down so that they'll last forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have trouble keeping my asparagus. <laughs> <laughs> Let alone my pound pilots. Anyway. Exactly, exactly. All right. Well, hey, let's jump onto a more fun topic. Let's talk about solar winds. Yeah. So this is technically back on our more normal track. So feedback and follow-ups. And obviously, the, the we did promise that the solar wind story would run and run and run. So unsurprisingly, hello, here we are again. Yeah. Um, I think you made a point of saying that this was almost certainly affecting more than just government stuff. And so as... As we pretty much expected, The Verge had a story on that, I think, hours after we recorded last time, where, yeah, of course, there were Intel, NVIDIA, Cisco, and many, many others were also affected because SolarWinds have 18,000 customers. And they did say that, I think they said something like, most of our 18,000 customers were not affected. Yeah, but even if it's 10% of your 18,000 customers, that's still an awful lot of customers. Yeah, yeah. And by customers, you mean companies, not people. Right, exactly. Yeah, so companies. you know, Microsoft is one out of your eighteen hundred. Yeah. So seeing Cisco in that list, now you've got a piece of hardware, so the SolarWinds device, infecting a company that makes networking hardware. Yeah, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they. I mean, hypothetically, it means that they are one step closer to getting their malware into Cisco's gear. But there are many, many more yeah, steps no between. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm saying, but now they're in there. I'm more, I'm yeah, more yeah. uncomfortable with with malware in a network company than any other thing, right? Because that's by the... AV company, security company. There's a list of highly, yeah. There's there's people who make privileged hardware and software who you really want to be clean, like yeah, crystal, I mean, if, crystal clear. If Microsoft Word gets infected, that's bad. But there's something you could do about it. Yeah, although Word is probably a poor example because it's bloody ubiquitous. Um, right, but there's something you can do about it. Yes, you know it is. You're right. It's, <laughs> if it's very in different. the network. That's 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 in your bloodstream. You know. Yeah, I mean, one of the scary, scary scenarios would be someone breaks into McAfee and get into McAfee's auto update servers and publish McAfee signed malware, which is automatically downloaded by everyone who has McAfee on planet Earth. Like that is one of the absolute scariest scenarios. And are, that's the, are the AV companies that relevant anymore now that Microsoft does so much of it on board? 
I, on the OS? Yeah, there. I still see a lot of places running automatic AV. Mm, it okay. just, you know, you, the, the machine joins the domain and they get AV pushed down to them. Hmm. Well, that's, that's nice. So I'm glad to hear that, that all these other big companies were attacked. Uh, what else? Yeah, so Microsoft, we have a little bit more color on the Microsoft. We still have the situation where Microsoft said none of their customers' stuff was accessed and that Microsoft weren't used to attack others. But they did get into some Microsoft systems and they have been able to view, but not edit, Microsoft source code. Wow. so Microsoft haven't said what source code. Now, it was actually a very interesting article in the New York Times, and it had one paragraph that really caught my eye, where apparently Microsoft have a policy where they don't keep their source code. They build their security so that it doesn't rely on their source code being secret. They assume their source code is public knowledge, even though it isn't for intellectual property reasons. They assume in their security architecture, the source code is public. Oh. Which is okay. a really clever approach, because it means that if if this kind of thing happens to you, it hasn't compromised your security. It's just a potential IP issue. Because oh, you're selling wow. proprietary software. But that's a very different kettle of fish, and there's copyright yeah. law and so forth to go after okay. violations. So I just thought it was interesting. And they also make the code widely available to their employees. So if a Microsoft employee wants to understand, how does this really work? They can actually go and view the source code. So instead of reading a manual that says it should do X, Y, or Z, they can actually find the if statement and see oh. what it actually does. Okay. So I just thought it was an interesting insight into how Microsoft work. And it's, again, a sign of Satya Nadella's skilled leadership, in my opinion. This is a very forward-thinking attitude. So that's why they were able to view the source code but not edit the well, source code. Well, no, the not edit is because you have controls on, like, you're not going to accept pull requests and stuff into your, you know, you're going to have source management. Um, but it's just the reason that everyone isn't panicking, auga, auga, the bad guys got to see Microsoft source code. This is a calamity is because Microsoft security is built around the concept, or sorry, built around the assumption that that was always true. Oh, okay. Okay. I just thought, you know, I say it was a throwaway paragraph at the bottom of the article, but it sort of caught my eye. I was like, oh, that's, that's clever. Um, and it's also good to trust your employees with your source code because it means they're actually in a much more empowered position because they're not left making assumptions. They can actually genuinely see what's happening. Oh, that's good. Mm. Hey, I, I did want to ask you, I mean, maybe this is obvious, but um, you're, uh, you often quote Bruce Schneier. I do. And uh, he was on Tech News Weekly on the Twit Network to talk about the SolarWinds hack. And he said, and I'm pretty close to quoting him exactly, mm-hmm. the only protection against this is to burn your network to the ground. That sounds like a pretty good description. You really do have to tear it all down and build it back up again. It's like the how analogy do, we used last time that? of, you know, a cancer. <laughs> if it finds one little place to hide, it'll come back. How do you do that, though? In a, I mean, if you've got a 200-person company, you know, you could take it offline for a week. But what does a you know Raytheon defense contractor with eighty thousand employees in in every country in the world do? I mean, how do you? Uh, okay, how do you shut now, the I, obviously down? there may be more advanced ways of doing it, but a a technique for this kind of a of a thing would be to create a, an entirely new domain from scratch, build it up from the ground, and then migrate oh, building man. by building or office by office 
from old oh, physical physical separate wired network you mean no 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 this no this is this why is would no, you do uh, it by building then or uh, oh well okay well a, a windows domain consists of about 50 servers in a large organization so you really are building an infrastructure right you're going to have a bunch of domain controllers you're going to have a bunch of file servers there are so many moving parts in a modern domain I mean, you're going to have your own certificate authority. That's three servers. You're probably going to have synchronization to the cloud. That's probably another three or four servers. So you're talking about a collection of 20 or 30 VMs that is the Windows domain. So the user sees the Windows domain, but in reality, it's 20 VMs that someone has configured for months can and you months. Do it on a v- can you do this on a VM if, the, if the, the network that a VM is on is infected? Um, I mean, yes, because your security is... Your security is built around the, the, all of your encryption stuff assumes that the, the network is being listened on, right? So that's part of your security assumptions. So you okay. do just, just, <laughs> right? You logically rebuild your Windows domain from scratch. And actually, if you want to find a tiny silver lining, like a teensy-weensy mm-hmm. little silver lining, a lot of places have large technical debt because they designed their Windows domain, say, back in the Windows 2000 or the Windows 2000, you know, early, before 2010. Mm-hmm. And Microsoft's technologies have advanced a lot. So a lot of Microsoft instructions will say, if you need to support legacy devices, then you must do this. But really, if you can at all avoid it, you should do this instead. So if you actually get to rebuild from scratch, you can actually do it by the book. And the chances are, if you ask any sysadmin in any large organization, if you had to do over, what would you change? They have a list. Like, mm-hmm. they, they, they have a huge sure. list. So it is an opportunity, if you're forced to do this anyway, to at least do it right. Yeah, you know, I, I was always of the, of the mind that, you know, just do it, you know, just make these changes. And yet the, the potential damage to multi-billion dollar programs of changing out of Windows 95. I mean, just things like that. The potential yeah. damage to the program in terms of schedule and, and delivery of critical stuff, just it's too big. You just can't. And yeah. so, you know, it, it, sure, there's all the stuff you'd like to do, and it would be better if you were there today, but the ability to get there, and I understand there's risks of not going, and I was always the yeah. one pushing the risks of not going, um, but in in reality, you know, and and when you talk about large organizations, we're probably not talking the same scale. Uh, where I worked, there were six thousand people at the single plant site that I worked at. Right. I mean, large organizations is a big scale, right? I mean, <laughs> when do we start saying large? You can start saying large after you hand up with a few hundred staff, but large goes a long way. Lar- like like <laughs> large. I was considered big a big. low level manager. A low-level manager because I only had 170 employees. Yeah, that worked. Yeah, for exactly. Me. So I was. That was not large. That was low-level. That was small. That was. That was. Pff, Allison, what are you doing? You don't. You don't manage much. You know. So yeah. my my frame of reference is completely different. So when I think of you know an 80,000 person country a company in in every country or definitely every state but two and probably most countries, it's just, it's pff, how do you do it? Well, the one thing is in these very large organizations, a lot of the IT infrastructure would be federated. Yeah. So it's it becomes then multiple, multiple networks have to be torched to the ground and rebuilt. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I just, I just can't even imagine being in those meetings right now, figuring out, okay, how, who we're going to make go first. And you're talking about a last? team. Like you, you are talking about building a team. Oh yeah. Of Many 20 teams. or 30 people to manage this change. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it means hiring consultants. It means, and it also means it's going to take a decade is what it means in, in government world. It would take a it would take a decade. We would we would take a full year planning for sure on something like this. This I mean it's, this is horrible. It, no, the, 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 you're right, absolutely. And I guess the only people who are even vaguely rubbing their hands together are security consultants who are like, "Well, we have a gig for the next while." That's that's yeah. Actually, if you know if you know any kids looking into uh, what kind of careers they should go into, we will say it again. We've said it before. Go into security. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, security and undertakers. There's always going to be need for those. Oh, dear. Let's not go down there. Hey, so there's a there's another hacking group going on with this now? Yeah, it's probably no surprise that someone else has got, oh, there's a bug in solar winds, you say. Ha 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 So there's a less sophisticated threat actor has also now been found exploiting the solar winds bug. So once the solar winds bug became public, it really was just a matter of time until much less sophisticated people started using it too. So it's not a surprise, but yes, there are there is now at least one other group using it too. So the vulnerability hasn't been removed? Well, it's been patched possible? by solar winds, but has right. everyone applied the patch? Okay, okay. So the answer you is clearly no. At the no. very least, you'd do that. <laughs> you would imagine so, but hey, look, it was the holidays and, you know, stuff and things. And, oh, do we run solar winds? Oh. <laughs> did that guy who we fired three months ago, did he, was that something he, he was set doing? set that up, didn't he? <laughs> you know, it's amazing what happens in organizations. Um, and just to cheer everyone up over the holidays, um, a second bug was found in SolarWinds, so Orion has been updated again, uh, which meant that CISA had to issue another order basically saying to everyone in the US government, update before the new year or shut down your Orion system. So that that wow. cheered up a lot of very cranky sysadmins between Christmas and New Year. Yeah, really. They're never getting another vacation. No. So one of the reasons you, everybody listening, should join our Slack is that um, Bart is in our Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack, and you can ask him questions, which given, you know, infinite time he can get to. Uh, this week, Steve asked a question in the uh, Security Bits channel within the Slack, and he said, in your discussion of the SolarWinds attack and the latest Security Bits, you mentioned the attack only affected Windows domain networks, albeit that probably impacts a high percentage of businesses out there. I infer this means that the few organizations that are not using a Windows domain network are definitely not impacted by this attack. Am I correct? Yeah, so I would say no. And in, in my answer to Steve, I said no for one reason. But now that I've had more time to think, I'm going to say no for two reasons. But the, the the one reason, first of all, is that we know from the original reporting on this AT, APT, well, I've typed that wrong every single time in my answer in Slack. So that's Advanced Persistent, persistent threat. threat. Yeah, APT. And for some reason, I have ATP. I'm sure that means something. Is that an explosive, ATP? <laughs> I don't know. It's It's an acronym that exists. But it's not the one I meant. Okay, <laughs> so start I'm... your sentence over because now I'm not following the. Yeah, what okay. You're so the first reason you can't be sure you're safe is because from the very, very earliest reporting, it was said that the advanced persistent threat was mostly using Orion to get in because that was really easy, but they were also using other techniques to get in. So well, but that's even... always going on. 
Right, but this specific advanced persistent threat, it was saying that, you know, a big thing is if you're running Orion, but if you're not running Orion, it doesn't mean you're safe. I mean, the, Steve's question was, if you're not running Orion on a Windows domain, are you safe? So hang on. So to me, an advanced, advanced persistent threat is a generic term. That's like saying hackers. Okay, but in it this case, it's unique. a specific APT, which has been numbered and given a name. So all of this is about a specific campaign by a specific APT, who are called Fancy Bear by some people. Uh, the different security companies have different names for these APTs. Okay. But if they were a country, like, it's like Russia is a specific country, right? So it is, mm-hmm. these attacks are by a specific advanced persistent threat. Okay. I, I'm, I'll have trouble turning my head into thinking of that as a specific term, not a generic term. Well, uh, country, still- country is a generic term, but we mm-hmm. talk about specific countries. Right. So are we saying Russia when you say this specific advanced persistent threat? Probably. Okay. As best as we can tell, the APT in question here is Fancy Bear, which is the Russian government. Okay, but the Russian government's got lots of advanced persistent threats going on, I right. would assume. I would assume right, they do. China does. Iran does. Everybody does. We do. Correct. So I mean, in this case, a specific APT has been found to be attacking specific U.S. targets and doing specific things. And now a lot of this is very, very much not in the public domain, the exact details, but they have indicators of compromise and all these kind of fancy terms for, you know, the kind of thing that's going on. And they're saying that just because you're not running Orion doesn't mean that you're not part of this specific attack. Okay. But But, what do you do with that? That's like just shiver in the corner and well, no, in no, no, because if you're one of these people, you have way more information than the public have, right? Because CISA okay. has shared specific indicators of compromise with people. So if you're actually in these organizations, you have way more information than you and I have. So CISA would have told you if you're under attack. No, they would have told the- you what to look for. So they would have given you the indicators of compromise. So they would have said to you, we think you've been targeted by this. Can you check your logs for probably a bunch of regular expressions, actually, ironically. Um, but okay. Okay. Now, now I'm following you. Okay. Yeah. What's the second reason? So the second reason is that while SolarWinds can be very tightly integrated with Windows, and when you very tightly integrate the SolarWinds stuff with Windows, you are going to be giving SolarWinds a lot of credentials on your Windows infrastructure. So SolarWinds... Orion is going to have deep access into your Windows domain, so it mm-hmm. can do powerful things. But, but Orion have- doesn't only manage Windows, as far as uh, as I understand it. So you could have Orion managing something else, and then the attacker would get into Orion, and then instead of pivoting to attacking your Windows infrastructure, they would attack your Linux? something else. Linux, Mac? whatever it is you were running that solar that that orion had its okay. teeth into okay okay all right i think i understand that i want to read uh bruce wilson um another good reason to be in our slack in the security bits uh, channel is because uh bruce wilson is is in there and, and writes some really good stuff mm. um he answered uh, steve's question or elaborated on kind of what bart was just saying and i think it's really well written so i wanted to read it 
He said, SolarWinds Orion often has high-level credentials, including Windows domain credentials, as well as SSH keys to log into privileged accounts on both Linux and network hardware. Orion runs on Windows, but is used to monitor and manage servers, Windows and Linux, applications, and network gear. A lot depends on what accounts are given to Orion and what privileges are given to those accounts. Tailoring that access to give those accounts what's needed and no more can be time-consuming. I've definitely seen people decide to just give Orion accounts unrestricted sudo uh, rather than sort out exactly what commands it does need to run. And it matters a lot if someone is using Orion to just monitor or if they are were using it to monitor and manage. So the point here is that multiple adversaries compromised Orion and got the ability to run code as the Orion process and thereby using any credential to which Orion has access. That's yeah, really uh, well written. I, I, now I get it. Yeah, I, I, clearly this is someone with some practical hands-on experience with Orion uh, or what it can <laughs> and can't do. Uh, and yeah, I mean, we're left with the, the good old-fashioned principle of least privilege, right? In theory, you should give all of your systems exactly the privilege they need and not a single bit more privilege. But that's darn hard work. It ta- yeah, it takes work. And every time you find something you need to have it do that it doesn't have the privilege, you have to go edit that file. So yeah, you can see why people would just go, ah, just give it all. Give it sudo. Sudo being full root access. Yeah, but even, even if you give it access to, you know, oh, it needs to be able to create accounts on a certain OU, maybe you're like, well, okay, we'll give it account creation access, but do we lock it down to the specific OU or do we just give it the right to create accounts anywhere in our domain? So th- th- this has, happens at so many different granularities, right? You might, you might not give it full pseudo access, but there's such a range of gray between all and nothing. I'm going to translate a little bit for Bart. OU is organizational unit. Yes, look basically me, a folder in your Active Directory. Look at me pulling that me- out of the memory banks. That's way back for me to even remember what that was. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, I mean, well, yeah, basically, yeah. the more you let Orion do for you, the worse this attack is for you because the bad guys can do whatever it is you told Orion it could do. Yeah. And it doesn't help to now tell Orion, okay, you only have this little tiny privilege because yep. they're already in there now. Yeah, exactly. That is literally closing the stable door after the horse is bolted. <laughs> you know, that's just, that, that analogy is perfect for that situation. As cliched as it is. Yeah. Okay, so anything else going on? Uh, Actually, nope, not I much. we're on to worthy warnings. <laughs> so, worthy warnings. Uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation rather unfortunately managed to get their um, Get Schooled charity got breached through Kind of carelessness, I'm afraid to say. Um, and 900,000 school children's details were compromised. Mm. And I'm afraid to say, while it's obviously not financial information because it's school kids, it's, it's a lot of PII. Um, PII again is? A personally identifiable information, mm. otherwise known as the bad stuff. So I, I would love to put a positive spin on it, but I am sorry to say if you if you have kids involved in Get Schools, you should probably have a read of exactly what's been breached, but it's quite a lot of your child's educational information is now available. And mm. email addresses and contact numbers and stuff like that. Ugh. Yeah, not good. T-Mobile also had a data breach, and while it's not yay, happy, happy, being the third breach of 2020, um, they at least do not include PII in their breach. I think it's so 2021, it's, Bart. It is, but the breach happened in 2020. Oh, you said it was the third breach of 2020? 
Oh, yeah. you don't mean third total breach. You're saying third breach of T-Mobile data? Yes, T-Mobile has for the third time in the year 2020 lost data. Oh, I got you. Okay, so I just talked over, what is the breach again? You said it's not as bad as it sounds? It, well, it's not as horrific as the Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates one. It's call data rather than billing or PII. Call data? Like, like yeah, what cell phone number is calling number? what other cell phone number? But it's not tying it back to, you know, Allison's email address is this. Hmm. Is hey, it Allison's look, it's not phone great. number called this, you know, porn company or something? <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's all that stuff, right? Which is why it's still data breach. It's still not great, but it yeah. doesn't tie it straight back to name, address, street, social security okay. number. So it could be worse. <laughs> could be raining. Okay. Yeah. And then listener Linda sent me on an article uh, from MSN.com, which really made me smile. No, it didn't. Um, I, swatting is a really horrible thing that happens way more than it should, particularly, I'm afraid to say, in the United States of America, because... What is swatting? So swatting is where you make a, f- a fraudulent phone call to law enforcement with the intention of inciting them to send an armed response. Oh, SWAT is in S-W-A-T. Yeah, as in a SWAT, SWAT team, team. Which I used to know what that acronym stood for, but now I don't. Um, but basically, you're talking about sending deeply worried, heavily armed people into Spe- what they think is a stressful situation. Special weapons and tactics. Now, so, yeah, there we go. That is actually very sensible. Yes. So... You basically phone in and say, I'm currently kidnapped or something like that. This is my address, but you're absolutely totally lying. And a SWAT team descends on some random innocent person's house. And this results in accidental death. This results in horrible injuries. And if you have a dog and your dog barks at a SWAT team, they will shoot the dog. Mm. You know, so like... uh, uh, People think this is ha-ha-ha hilarious for the lulls. No, it isn't. It's really dangerous. And the reason it happens more in America than in other countries is because American police are more militarized than the Irish police, say, for example. So it's Mm -hmm. funnier. I don't know how much air quotes and irony I can put into my voice, but, I mean, this is just vile. And I pretty much thought I had run out of ways I could detest people who do this more. But no, they have found a new way to make me cranky at them. It is now apparently, according to the FBI, the done thing to hack people's smart home devices so you can use their own camera to spy on them while you risk their life for your entertainment. Oh, so they just want to watch the SWAT happen? Yeah, and live stream it. That's the big thing is you live stream. Yeah, I mean, this is just vile stuff. So it was always ick. Like it was always ick because one of the ways people would do it is that while you're gaming with them, say on some sort of game where you have voice, you know, real time voice, you would swat them and then share that out with all of your friends. Ha 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 ha! Isn't it hilarious? Well, now you can stream it from their own Ring video doorbell or whatever. He's using that as an example. He's not saying Ring was hacked to do this, right? Because it's not basically the FBI are saying. The tactic is to go after people's smart home devices. So you could hack a ring by them by your ring having a terrible password. Yeah. Right? It's I not that there's a security want, the, I just I was trying to stop you from implying that Ring was called out in this as being hacked for this purpose. No. He's Correct. just throwing out Ring as an example. Yes, exactly. So oh, the kind of device camera. 
And uh, unfortunately, that's the kind of device that they would love to have because you have a wide angle view of the front door as the policemen and the, the, with their machine guns come charging through. Ha 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 ha. Isn't it hilarious? Policemen and women. True. Anyway. <laughs> and you can't really tell the difference when they're swatted up, can you? No. All right. Well, that's a lovely story. Thanks a lot, Linda. Can we move on to notable news? Indeed. So, uh, okay, still not on the good news side. Um, this is in notable news because it's not really a data breach, right? It's not a. It's not a warning because it's, there's nothing really to warn you about. But it is kind of embarrassing, and we should call Apple out when they do silly things. So, Apple had a hearing study through Apple Health. And they correctly got people's consent to collect specific medical information about hearing, because that's what the study was about. Mm -hmm. And what they have done is they have accidentally continued to collect the information they had permission for, for longer than they asked for the permission for. Okay. So it's not new information. It hasn't been leaked. They just collected more than they... They collected longer than they had your permission for. So technically speaking, that is a data breach because you gave them permission to collect until X and they collected until X plus N. Is the word breach? It is a breach. Breach, It's a breach of trust. Okay, under GDPR, it is a data breach because data has been lost control of. Your personal data has been taken off your device outside of agreements. Okay. So legally speaking, if I were a lawyer and this had all happened in Europe, which it didn't because it all happened in America, then this would be a breach by the definition provided by the GDPR. So one thing I heard you and uh, Ken Ray talking about this on Let's Talk Apple for December. Great episode, by the way. And uh, it wasn't clear to me whether Apple came forward and said, oops, or whether someone caught them doing it wrong or how that was reported. Do you know? I don't know for sure. My assumption is Apple just owned up to it, but, or rather... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here it is. The the first line in the article from iMore. An email sent out to participants of the Apple hearing study. Uh, Apple said that they uh, didn't stop collecting it when they said they would. Okay, that makes sense, because I don't really know how else it would have gotten out, I guess, unless there was a whistleblower within Apple, I guess. Oh, in order to fix the bug... It was actually a bug. In order to fix a bug, users need to update the latest version of the Apple Research app. Until they do, historical data will continue to be looked looked for and deleted. I must be... um, You guys should read it. But anyway, Apple did tell people. Okay, and I guess what Apple is saying is if, if you don't update, it'll keep sending to us, but we're deleting it on our end, but you're still sending it to us. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, then, I see what I see what the problem is. So it was it's unintentionally un- collecting thirty days of historical data. It went backwards when it was supposed to go fo- only forwards. Ah, okay. So it was a bug. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, most data breaches are well, they're bugs or <laughs> human <Stupid>. bugs. Yeah. <laughs> Um, another Apple-related story, which is an interesting one. So there's a security company called Corellium. And they have a product which is meant for security researchers to test exploits against iOS. And they do so by providing a virtualized version of iOS with extra tooling added to give you visibility into what's going on under the hood. So instrumentation, I think, is the term. And Corellium are selling that as a product, but 
they're basically selling copies of iOS. And so, from an intellectual property point of view, I can see why Apple would be concerned about it. So Apple sued Corellium and said, you are breaching our copyright by distributing our operating system without our permission and charging people for it. And you've broken the DMCA by getting around our DRM. And that case has now been half judged. So the judge ruled that by adding in the instrumentation and by by turning it into a tool for research, that's fair use because this is a derivative work, hmm. which is a okay. very interesting application of copyright law. I mean, and I can see the judge's point. This is like a, it is analogous to a parody, right? It, it, it is a different use of the same operating system. So it is a derivative work. So that's a very interesting application of copyright law. Yeah. Yeah. And this does seem, I mean, I would logically think of it as fair use, right? It's, it, it seems is, to me, yeah. 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 I think there now, was also some subtleties in there about uh, what Corellium was doing, who they were allowing to have access to this. It isn't just on the wide open market, anybody can buy it. Right. They're, they're one of these typical, what I would call a gray hat security company. Yeah. 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 I mean, light gray, even. And sure, but I... <laughs> not the, white <laughs> yeah I was going to say the probability is very high that at least some of their customers would be on your yeesh list mm-hmm. um, but the judge has only ruled on half of the court case right so this does not breach copyright okay interesting uh, but it hasn't ruled on the DMCA part so the fact that in order to get the code which they are now al- which they have now altered and redistributed In order to get it, they had to break Apple's DRM, and breaking DRM is explicitly illegal in the United States thanks to the DMCA. So you know what that reads me as is that it is both legal and illegal to make backup copies of your DVDs. Correct. (laughs) And your Um, CDs. It is illegal because you have to reverse the copy protection to do it, but it's fair use, so it's legal. Okay, well, no, because stuff is illegal if it, it it's an or, right? Something becomes illegal if any law makes it illegal. Well, but but there have been rulings in both directions in the United sure. States on the DCMA, the, uh, DMCA. The same thing is both things have been ruled to be true, that it's legal because it's fair use and it's illegal because it broke copyright. Well, no, okay, so fair use is copyright law. DMCA is... They're different laws, but okay, right, they right, are right. in conflict with each other. It is both point. illegal and legal at the same time, and that sounds like exactly what this ruling is saying. It, well, well no, we haven't no, had no. the DMCA ruling yet. I was going to say, so the judge has said, I am saying this is fine on copyright grounds, therefore this case can continue, but only on DMCA grounds. So we mm-hmm. don't know how that's going to work out. Um, but the DMCA is a terrible law. As I said to Ken on the show, it's, it's not a law that other nations have chosen to copy. I'm yeah, I, I, so I heard you say that. You said there's nothing like this, but the DMCA is, was based on the WIPO Copyright Treaty of, ten, of 1996, which is the, the World Intellectual Property Organization. And there's 191 countries as members of WIPO. So do you know that WIPO doesn't have anything like this in it? Well, so the the issue is that the DMCA made the actual circumvention illegal, whereas copyright law around the world is about the copyright. 
So the whole question of, is this fair use, is this not fair use, that's copyright, okay. and we have that oh, around it's, the world. So it's the breaking of copy protection that's the piece. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, yes. okay, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Because technically speaking, it makes a Sharpie illegal, because you can use a Sharpie to break the DRM on like a video cassette or some ancient technology. Mm-hmm. Right, so right. it's making the circumvention of copyright protection illegal is the weird thing that the US did and the rest of the world sort of stood back and went, I don't think this is going to go well. Oh, look, it didn't. Um, and didn't copy. Um, okay, tips and tricks then. Um, I'm not sure this is good news either, but I guess it's good it exists. So <laughs> it is unfortunately true that there are people who end up as the receiving end of abusive spouses or stalkers of other kinds. And those people may have Apple products in their life. And Apple products actually have a lot of protections in them to help you protect yourself. And Apple have created a PDF to help people in that unfortunate situation to use the various tools iOS and the Mac provide to protect yourself as best you can. Hmm. So it's basically a guide for how do you security configure your iOS devices. And I think it covers the Mac too. Yeah, device and data access when personal safety is at risk. Yeah. Wow. First so, thing it says, Bart, number one, update your software. Yay! Stay, stay patched, patched so you, so you stay secure. Apple says so. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah, don't mm. do it because I say so. <laughs> it's because intelligent <laughs> people say so. Um, And that's kind of, I think that's, unless I'm missing something in my own show notes, that's it, apart from a no palate pal- cleanser. You have a palate cleanser. I do a deeply, deeply nerdy palate cleanser. And a very nerdy. We need a palate cleanser this week, Bart. We kind of do. Yeah, there's not much news, but it's all icky. Um, So this is a really long blog post to the point where I'd say it's almost verging on being a small book. So don't consume this in one go. But it is an excellent soup to nuts explanation of the working of cameras and lenses. The actual physics of what's going on. And it will really give you a better understanding about what makes a good lens versus a bad lens, a good sensor versus a bad sensor. Because like almost everything on planet Earth, it's all trade-offs all the way down. Because, you know, a a perfect lens would do X. It's like, yeah, only that perfect lens will only be perfect in one colour of light. Oh, look, light comes in many colours. Not perfect anymore. We get dispersion, fringing. And it explains all of these things. and. The diagrams are interactive. So you have little sliders to change the focal ratio or so to change the aperture and to see how that affects red light differently to blue light. And so as you slide it over and back, you can see how it makes the, you know, the colors shift around the edges of things bigger or worse, depending on whether you open the aperture or close the aperture. You know, how does a lens focus light? It's... All all the diagrams are interactive and let you slide around and see the effect of them. And it's just a really nice way to learn about the physics of what's going on. Oh, this is so fun, Bart. I don't even know what I'm looking at. I'm just swirling things around and dragging sliders and stuff. It's really, really interesting. It's extremely well done. That is a tiny scroll bar I'm looking at. Yes, it is. So this is one to nibble away at rather than to consume in one go. Because it's quite, quite the consumption if you do it all at once. 
Right, right. I'm going to do a little trick here. Uh, I found out recently that Ulysses, I'm really liking Ulysses lately, by the way. Uh, oh. Ulysses will tell you how long it will take you to read something. Oh, that's uh, a nice trick. Uh, 26 minutes. 6,364 words. Quite dense words. Yeah, dense words, and you're going to stop and play with the... If you don't play with the sliders, you can get done in a half an hour, but you're going to want to play with the sliders, right? Yeah, I think, well, that might be a good way of seeing how long it takes you to do the physical act of reading. Not sure it's a measure of comprehension. Yeah, yeah, it would take a little bit longer. But that's not that much bigger than one of my old blog posts when I used to put everything in one post. They were around 5,000. True. And it did take you the best part of an hour to read it out. Exactly, exactly. So, all right, that's a, that's a cool one. I, I enjoy that. It has nothing to do with security, but it was, uh, it was definitely enjoyable. Yeah, and it, well, it's the kind of thing our people would like, right? Exactly, exactly. Well, this was, uh, this was interesting. I won't call it fun, but I yeah. learned a lot, so that's got to be good, right? Hey, that's the point of these things, right? And as, as, Microsoft, as, sorry, as Apple have said... Remember, folks, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind things up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Want to become a patron? Go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to be cool like Lauren Ralph and do a PayPal donation? Podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join our Facebook group like Tim McCoy, where he gave me that uh, great suggestion about my desktop background? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack where we have lots of fun? Go on over to podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join the fun of the live show like Kevin Jones did for the very first time, which caused a lot of confusion because we got Kevin in there and we had to decide he's OG Kevin now. It's been very exciting. Anyway, if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.